Hampshire Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham, Managing Editor of NHJournal.com. Thank you so much for checking out the pod, sharing it with your friends, and of course, signing up for our daily political newsletter, the number one political newsletter in New Hampshire at nhjournal.com. we got a lot of great stories over at NH Journal right now, by the way. Uh, but one story that caught my eye, because we've frequently written about the issue of free speech, and particularly universities and free speech at NH Journal, was the horrific incident uh, recently at Stanford Law School when U.S. Circuit Court Judge Kyle Duncan was invited to speak by the Federalist Society. He showed up at their invitation and then was shouted down by a group of law school students. That's bad enough. And then a member of the uh, of the administration who was theoretically there to advance free speech instead lectured Judge Duncan about his appearance and whether it was really worth all the trouble of this free speechifying going on. As she put it, was the juice worth the squeeze, which I'm not sure which... Supreme Court ruling, that one comes from. Sounds kind of Scalia-ish, doesn't it? But anyway, uh, so what's the status of campus free speech here in New Hampshire? We've written about it in the past, but we thought we would check in with the person who would know best, the president of the University of New Hampshire, James Dean. So please welcome to this special edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast, the president of the University of New Hampshire, Jim Dean. How are you doing, Mr. President? I'm doing great. I do go by Mike or Michael. My friends call me Michael, and I wanted to ask you this because you have the worst name of any college president in the world, President Dean. I'm sorry. <laughs> what's like? What's how does that's just like? Be that's like if your last name is Nurse and you become a doctor. Hi, I'm Doctor Nurse. What? So it's very very odd. So um, I will confess, Michael, that uh, prior to being President Dean, I was Dean Dean. <laughs> I remember your work as Dean Dean the Dancing Machine. So that's how far back I go. And I did, I also, in disclosure to everyone, if you wonder why I'm talking so slowly, it's because uh, President Dean used to be at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And so being from South Carolina, we know to talk slowly when dealing with people in the wrong Carolina. I think I got that right, didn't I? North Carolina it is. I was there for 21 years <laughs> in Chapel Hill. Yeah, I thought you were from South Carolina. Very cool. Go Cox. So we got to straighten these Yankees out about something, I guess we do. So let's, I want to talk to you about this conversation that people are having both in New Hampshire and around the nation about free speech, uh, academic speech, where the line should be drawn, et cetera. Uh, we are longtime associates of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And at New Hampshire Journal, we've reported in the past on the various rankings that uh, the universities here in New Hampshire have because it's a topic that we care about. So can because most people don't know, can you tell us a bit about the university's history with FIRE, what the ranking means to you, what does it measure, and how do you feel about UNH perform UNH's performance thus far? Sure. Thanks so much for the, that question. So FIRE is an organization that was founded in order to assess how higher education organizations are doing on their responsibilities for free speech. Uh, they've actually changed the name. The acronym is the same, but they've changed the name recently to include expression because they want to sort of broaden uh, right. their focus. But but most of their focus is really on higher education organizations and free speech. And for the last five years, not only UNH, but all three institutions in the university system in New Hampshire have all gotten green light ratings. So they have a pretty straightforward red, yellow, green light rating. Right. Prior to 2018, I understand there were some yellow lights, but they've been all green for the last five years. 
And then that's a good sign. And it's uh, funny to compare it to uh, Dartmouth, the Ivy League school here in the state, where they've struggled to maintain a gentleman's C. Um, wh wh why is this ranking important to you as the dean of the university? Well, the, the two levels, really. First, I mean, free speech is, is arguably the most fundamental American constitutional right. That's literally the First Amendment to the Constitution. So as a citizen, as a proud American, this is really important to me in, in all settings of free speech. Democracy uh, really depends on free speech. And you can see in places around the world that don't have democracy that free speech is compromised and it's a very slippery slope. Beyond that, as a higher education organization where the whole deal is to be exposed to new ideas and different right. ideas, we have a really sacred right to make sure that people are exposed to a wide range of ideas and can uh, learn how to think and consider ideas on their own. Now, one thing I want to be clear about, though, is this doesn't mean that your ideas never get criticized. Right. right? That's not what the First Amendment says, but it should be a marketplace for ideas, and the marketplace should be open to all ideas. So let's talk about some of the high-profile incidents that we've seen around the country and, and apply that standard that you just had. For example, when a circuit court judge was invited to uh, or excuse me, appellate court judge was invited to Stanford Law School. You, I mean, I didn't go to law school because, you know, I was terrified that I might wake up one day and be, become a lawyer. But mm -hmm. you would want to have, you know, a high ranking judge talking to students. That's a tremendous opportunity. And the problem wasn't the disagreement with the judge's opinions. The problem was the judge was not allowed to speak. And then a member of the uh, uh, university, you know, not the faculty, but the administration who you know, works in the DEI area came in and lectured the, the guests. <laughs> You're not supposed to speak. And that throws a lot of people off about, well, what, it, where, how do you expose people to new ideas? Not because you, like you said, you don't get a chance to criticize them, to ask tough questions, to say, I think you're wrong, but simply not allow them to express those opinions in the first place. Well, the situation you're talking about is, is really a travesty. Um, I mean, you gave Dartmouth a gentleman C. You'd have to give Stanford an F minus on this one. I mean, there's, there's a lot of settled law on this. So I wrote a book a few years ago trying to help business people understand how universities work because a lot of business people work with universities. And there's a section in my book about First Amendment rights and where are the exceptions, which are pretty limited. So universities can regulate the time, place, and manner. You can't stand up in the middle of a physics class and start screaming about anything, really. Right. Unless it's physics, I guess. Uh, so, <laughs> which doesn't generate. Go gravity. Life. Go <laughs> nine point eight meters per second. That's what I say. So there's a lot of settled law here, and, and the law that's relevant to what you're talking about is called the heckler's veto. Mm -hmm. And that means that a university, and really any public entity, has not only the right but the responsibility to allow someone to speak and not allow someone to keep them from speaking by heckling. And Stanford patently uh, did not rise to the occasion right. there. I will say that, that UNH has risen to that occasion several times. We've had speakers across the political spectrum on campus, and we've ensured that they had the opportunity to speak as they should. I want to ask you about the perception that if your politics are center right, that walking onto a campus across the country is enemy held territory. In other words, it's not just that you're going to be in the minority. I think you know, people are kind of used to that but rather that you are going to be both unwelcome and made to feel unwelcome. And it's not just, you know, like university administrators or faculty, but it's the culture of students who 
my friends who work in academia tell me that they've seen a real shift over the past generation from, yeah, you know, we're liberal, but let's go party to my politics are so important that I don't know that I can let you sit in my classroom. I don't want to be with you. I can't let you speak. And so I would ask, number one, is what is that a accurate description of the climate around the country, not necessarily just UNH? And then do universities have some ability and duty to try to communicate to students that they need to create, it's part of the university mission to help you create a space where you can hear ideas that you find defensive, but can process them, understand them, debate them and, and go on. It's a complicated question. So I, I appreciate it. Let me try to unpack it a little Take bit. Your time. I, would say that, I would say that by what we've done, uh, the University of New Hampshire has demonstrated our commitment to free speech across the spectrum. We've had turning point here. We've ensured right. that the turning point is, is safe and able to speak. And in fact, the speaker, uh, Mr. Kirk at turning point, thank the students for the respectful listening at the end of his talk. So, I, I mean, it's one thing for me to blah, 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 say, here's what we believe, but we're actually, <laughs> we're actually walking the talk. And we've actually right. done this on several occasions. And I will say that, that some of our students, far from all of our students, are unhappy with that because there are students who believe that free speech rights should be limited based on what people say, but they're wrong. Right, based on the Constitution right. and based on our responsibility, and and so we really uh, live up to that. Um, you know, New Hampshire is a pretty purple state. I mean, when you count the votes, right? It, I mean, it's, right. it's fifty-five, forty-five, or I mean, look at the legislature right now. Exactly, right? two hundred and one to one hundred ninety. <laughs> That's about as close as it gets for a body that big. So. So you'd have a hard time, and you know, a lot of our students come from New Hampshire, they come from families right. across the political spectrum. So I, I think it would probably be incorrect to think that that the place is predominantly liberal or progressive. Right. Now, in fairness, I think I would also say that that if you look over the course of a lifetime, younger people probably have a tendency to be more progressive or liberal. And as people sure. get older, they tend to shift a little bit to the right. So it wouldn't be astonishing if the if the weight of it sort of moved, it was more on the left side. But we have people, and, and I know this because I talk to them all the time, across the political spectrum um, within uh, within the university, and we have arguments and, and so on. I mean, just as an example, since you've obviously, you know I came from North Carolina, you probably also <laughs> know I, I was a business school dean. Well, right. most business school faculty are pretty conservative, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, we have responsibility for teaching our students and many of our students at business school here, the Peter Paul College is mm -hmm. one of our most prominent schools. So I think it's a lot more mixed than people think. So I think about the, and I actually, since you plugged your book, I wrote a book a few years ago called Redneck Nation, how the South really won the war. And the premise was that all the bad ideas of the segregated South were becoming the dominant ideas of the progressive movement. One of them was opposing free speech. And I wrote about Mario Savio and the University of Berkeley, right? Standing on the hood of the car. You forget these speech codes. You let us speak. Let us hear. Let bring in communists. We want to hear all the ideas. And now you think, oh my gosh, the people dragging Savio off the car wouldn't be the administrators. It would be his fellow classmates <laughs> beating him up saying, I'm not going to listen to whatever, you know, Tucker Carlson. Whatever. And that's why I want to ask you is because you've been in academia so long, is there a change in the attitude of the students, of the consumers, if you will, if you want to look at students that way. And is there something that, you know, Americans as a whole, concerned parents, I have a student in college right now, my son just graduated from UNH, by the way, where he said he just didn't run into politics because he's not a political guy and it wasn't a thing. And he was a, you know, a theater major. And so it just didn't come up. Uh, hmm. Is there something the parents, the culture, the neighborhoods should be, are we contributing to this unwillingness for our kids 
to you know be willing to tolerate opinions that they don't like? Uh, so two responses to that. One is I believe that universities have a responsibility to educate beyond what goes on in the classroom and to try and help people become effective citizens and loyal citizens and, and participating in democracy citizens. And part of that is understanding free speech rights in that when, when students, you know, raise objections to things, you know, sometimes you do have to say, you know, we are responsible for running the university and we have real important responsibilities to the constitution. And I'm sorry, but you're wrong. We're going to have the speech and you just have to, to do that, you know, um, and that's part of our responsibilities for them. <clears throat> but but to go to the core of your question, you don't need me to tell you we've got a pretty high level of polarization in the country right now. And I think that social media has made it much worse. And unfortunately, people have retreated to their opposite corners. And I think to a large extent, people are only listening to people that they already agree with. Right. I don't think that's helpful. Um, I and one of the things that we're doing here at, at UNH is we have something called a civil discourse lab where we bring together people who disagree on issues and try to help them learn how to have constructive discussions. We're planning to have a, a speaker who's pro-life here on campus in a couple of months, and that will be another opportunity to try and do uh, civil discourse. Um, but I, I mean, if I'm going to be really honest with you, Michael, I, I don't think we've set a great example for our students. I, we as the adults in the room. Right. And, and I think we need to do better. It's one thing to disagree. I'm sure if we talk politics, we'd agree right. on some things and disagree on other things. But but you have to do it from an atmosphere of respect, of respecting differences of opinion, finding areas of agreement, respectfully disagreeing in other areas and seeing how you can work together and move on. That's the, that is the example we need to set for our students. And I'm afraid if they just look out at the world in general and social media in particular, they're not seeing. Well, I, I, and I agree. If we had a conversation, I would let you be wrong all you wanted. It would not bother me at all <laughs> that you were wrong. I want to wrap up by talking about the role of state government. Obviously a lot of New Hampshire Journal readers are involved in state government, et cetera. And I've, Two prongs to this question. One is, can you talk a bit more about uh, why taxpayers, you believe, should be supporting public uh, higher education? What's the investment in them? And secondly, is, do you think that it, that Concord could help backstop your efforts and the administration's efforts to make sure that everyone understands, look, free speech, even speech you don't like, is going to be part of our culture by taking legislative action by for example saying we you know here's your money and by the way we are watching you know how you handle free speech so that you can then go to grumpy people and say look you know we, we need to do this because there are free speech advocates who are helping us pay the bills and that way the 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 premise that we should all be involved in speech would help or would you rather the legislature stick to its knitting and just focus on the financial side well, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that the legislature could do anything that would go beyond what the U.S. Constitution already requires of us. Good point. So, I mean, and, and we've met that requirement and we have not just me as president saying this, but we have fire as a disinterested third party with an objective framework saying that. So whatever the legislature decides to do, I doubt it'll have a lot of impact because we're already meeting a really, really high standard for free speech. Um, you know, they may feel they need to do that for, for their own reasons, and, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I don't I don't think it would have a lot of impact because, I mean, the, you know, the American Constitution is pretty important to us. And, and there's actually some teeth to that. If we were to be found to not support free speech rights on campus, uh, we could get in trouble with the federal government in a way that could endanger our federal funding, which is existential. 
or right. a university because of all the student aid and, and so on. Um, in terms of the question about uh, about aid or rather uh, funding for the university, why should the state government fund a public university? We are the biggest provider of talent for the workforce of New Hampshire, full stop. We're bringing both people from within New Hampshire and from outside New Hampshire to the professional workforce in a way that no other entity is. Uh, I'm a member of the Business and Industry Association Executive Board. That board has endorsed additional funding for both the four-year universities and for the community colleges right. because they're desperate for talent and we are providing talent. The higher tuition goes, the more likely students are to leave the state and go someplace else and not come back. And we need them here. The, the number one business challenge, and again, I'll remind you, I used to be a business school dean. I grew up in business schools. The number one challenge for businesses in New Hampshire is finding and keeping talent. And the university system of New Hampshire and the community college system of New Hampshire are the biggest contributors to that. That's why. And where are the areas where the employers are telling you, please get us more graduates in these air, you know, in these uh, principles, these skills, et cetera? Uh, it, it's all over the map. I mean, yeah. it, but healthcare would be an obvious one. We've just doubled the size of our nursing program at UNH. Keene and Plymouth also have done a lot in terms of nursing. Um, so healthcare would be one. We do a lot of pre-med, so students who go on to, to be doctors would be one. You know, Fidelity is a big employer here. So people who go into uh, financial services, uh, Liberty Mutual would, would be another one. But then we have also a lot of engineering firms. You look at DECA there in, in Manchester, what they're doing with tissue engineering. You look at BAE systems and so on. You look at Lanza. So they're looking for scientists. They're looking for engineer. And the university system provides all of those. And I, I'm not tooting our own horn. That's just a fact that, that we are the provider of the workforce of New Hampshire. And if the tax base in the economy is going to flourish, it has to flourish because of educational organizations. I know you want to end the conversation, but let me say... There's not a single vibrant flourishing area within the entire United States where there's not a university that's contributing to it. Right. Well, listen, toot away, uh, President Dean, that's why you're here. And I can't wait until you are Chancellor President Dean, and then maybe we can get your nickname to be administrator, and then you'll have them all covered there in one business card. It'll be so, Michael, I, I have to tell you that I am indeed interim chancellor of the university. <laughs> system, so your dream has come true today. That's absolutely perfect. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Jim Dean, the uh, Chancellor, President, and Dean at uh, the University of New Hampshire. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Please find us on Twitter, New Hamp Journal, on Facebook, NH Journal, and of course at nhjournal.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. I'm Michael Graham with Inside Sources. Thanks again for listening.